Hey, it's great to be uh, here this morning, and I, I want to begin with saying a few, first introducing myself, especially if you're new, and then saying a few thanks. My name is Travis, and I'm our uh, worship pastor here. I, I do that as a, a part-time role, and uh, this morning we got to enjoy uh, worship being led by Cody and the team. We've got an incredible team that leads us in worship every week, and so I want to first start by just saying thanks to the guys who were serving, guys and gals serving this morning, and to those who serve on our worship. It's a it's a privilege leading that group, and it's, it's fun every week, and it's meaningful, and it's something I look forward to every week. But today, I'm in a little bit of a different role, uh, bringing the, the word this morning, and so I do want to say thank you to Aaron and the elders for giving me the opportunity to preach God's word. Uh, I don't take that lightly. Uh, it's a, a serious thing to be entrusted with handling the word of God, and so I thank you for that. And I also want to thank the staff that's been a great staff to be a part of here at Dallas Bible Church. And uh, I know most of you know some of the staff. I want to encourage you to get to know all of the staff, some incredible people who love the Lord, who serve the Lord here, and who serve you. And then finally, I just want to say thank you to you, Dallas Bible Church. We started here in July, and it's been a wonderful place. And I'm so thankful to be partnering with you in serving the Lord and serving our community together. Thank you for the way that you have been generous and gracious to me and my family, the way you've received us, and the way that I think one of the unique things to me about Dallas Bible Church, there's so many people here who are great at specific encouragement, and I really appreciate that, and I know many of us appreciate specific encouragement. So after worship services, when people say, hey, I really appreciated when you did that hymn, or when you sang that song, or when you said that thing, that encourages me, so thank you for those encouragements. But we are today continuing in our series. Uh, we started a series back in August called The Big Story. And from August until, uh, Aaron, when are we going to finish this series up? It's, we don't know. We're going to get through the entire Bible as we talk about the big story of Scripture. So today, it's simply The Big Story Continues. We began last week in the New Testament. We finally wrapped up the Old Testament with, uh, as Aaron said, the Italian prophet Malachi. And... Uh, couple weeks ago, and then uh, last week we started in the New Testament, and I'm going to continue in that today. But something that I've been thinking a lot about as I've been preparing for this message, there's a, a quote, and maybe if you've been uh, in any meetings with consultants, I'm sure you've heard consultants borrow this quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, for the simplicity that lies this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. You know, you think about some of the things that we encounter. We're going to talk about scripture today. And there's certainly a simple message, but it's not just simple. There's a lot of layers and nuance and complexity. And what I want to try to unpack for us is get to the other side of some complexity for us today. And it reminds me of a, a story back in 1998. It was a great year for the, the Jones family. My uh, son was born, and you saw him up here uh, with the red mane of hair playing the keyboard. Uh, he was born in 1998, but 1998 was also a very special year for Dallas, especially if you're a Dallas Mavericks basketball fan. Who, who knows what happened in 1998? Dirk. We, got, we drafted Dirk Nowitzki, and that, and, and that was the... That happened the same year my son was born, and it's funny because as I would watch basketball games, as he was, you know, went from an infant to a toddler uh, to a young child, he would sit and watch those basketball games with me, and he was fascinated with the Mavericks, and we loved 
Dirk and Nash and Finley and that, those teams. And, and Caleb, uh, early on, developed this love for basketball. So we got him one of the Little Tykes basketball goals. Anyone, everyone have those for your kids? Those little, little Tykes. But eventually that wasn't cool enough, and we needed a big boy basket. And so someone gave us an adjustable goal, and, and we lowered it you know, to whatever, eight feet, the lowest it would go. And, and he was just not quite big enough to get the real basketball over the rim. But, I mean, he would shoot the basket. He would kind of climb. And it, I think after he made his first basket, he tried for so long. I, I, I tried to encourage him, and I said, you know, hey, bud, listen. When you make 10 baskets, we'll get you a, a present, maybe like a Lego basketball set or something. And it took him a month to make those 10 baskets. <laughs> now, he was little. And, and now, listen, I wasn't, this, this is not 10 baskets in a row without a miss. I wasn't being mean. This was like a crude 10 baskets. It took him a month to make those 10 baskets. But it just sparked that love for basketball. And so maybe a couple years after that, he, he wanted to play basketball. And we went up to the YMCA and signed him up for a team. And they had the meeting, and they said, this was pre-K. So they said, hey, we, we need more coaches. Who's willing to coach basketball? And I was like, well, I'll, I'll coach basketball. How hard could that be? And uh, I wasn't much of a basketball player. I liked playing basketball as a kid, but I went to uh, junior high school just up the road here at Park Hill, and the day we showed up for basketball tryouts, there were 100 boys. And so it took like three days to get through tryouts, and I'm sad to say uh, I didn't even make it to day two. Um, yeah, you can, oh, isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? I didn't even make it to day two. But, but now I've decided I'm, I'm going to be a basketball coach because, you know, I mean, it's about putting a ball in a hoop, right? So we, we have our first couple of practices, and these boys didn't even know each other, and, and we would get a 45-minute practice on a half court. So we finally get to our first game, and about a minute into the game, the ball rolls out of bounds, and it occurs to me that I'd never taught the kids how to throw the ball in. I mean, we were just trying to dribble with one hand and stop, you know, when we stopped with the ball, and maybe get the ball in the basket. But I was like, oh... And so over that whole season, I realized how complicated basketball is. When you watch it, even as a casual observer, it can seem simple. And I mean, you're, anybody watching March Madness? My poor dad, who went to the University of Houston, had his share of heartache in uh, the 80s. And then last night, Michigan, with you know, the time running off the clock, hits another a three-pointer and beats the University of Houston. And you don't have to know all the nuances of basketball to appreciate that moment, do you? I mean, that's exciting. They'll keep playing that on Sports Center over and over again. But to really understand basketball and to teach basketball and to coach basketball, you've got to get through the complexity of it. I love the joke by uh, one of Woody Allen's jokes. He said, I, I took a, a speed reading course once, and I read War and Peace in 20 minutes. It involves Russia. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes... We can oversimplify, and, and, and we need to dig into the complexity of something and get to the other side. And that's what I want to do today, because yes, the Bible, there is a simple message. It's the story of God and his people. It's a story of Jesus. But for many of us, especially those of us who grew up church, there's a lot of layers that we forget. And we start to treat the Bible, in a lot of ways, as something it isn't. And so what I want to do, I want to have a little interaction with you, if you will. And the first question I have is, what is the Bible? What is it? So just throw out some answers. When, when I ask that question, what comes to your mind? What is the Bible? 
The word of God. Someone else. Oh, wait, say that again. That was good. A bunch of books that are put together to make one big story. You must go to a Bible church, young lady. Fantastic. What's another answer? What, what are some answers that you think of? What, off the top of your head, someone said the scripture, the word of God. What else? Truth. God's what? God's love letters to us. So these are all great answers. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I read this book, and I want to recommend it to you. Uh, it, it's called Saving the Bible from Ourselves. The author's Glenn Powell, and that's kind of a provocative title, isn't it? Saving the Bible from Ourselves. But his subtitle is Learning to Read and Live the Bible Well. And one of the things he does is in, in his introduction, he tells a great story about a Sunday school teacher who is talking to his class, and, and he asks them the question this way to try to answer the, what is the Bible. He says, which of the following is the Bible most like? A, Bartlett's familiar quotations. B, the Reader's Digest Guide to Home Repairs. Or C, the collected papers of the American Anti-Slavery Society. He says the correct answer is C, although we most often use the Bible like A and expect it to be like B. So as we leave this slide up, I want to talk through those ideas about what the Bible actually is. It, you know, we, we often use the Bible like A, like a book of quotations, like a book of, of motivational sayings or pithy statements, right? We, we try to find a Bible verse that's good enough to needlepoint on a pillow or tattoo on our arm. I mean, it's like we want to find that one verse, right? What's your life verse? Have you ever had someone ask you that? And, and we try to find what's that one motivational quote that defines you. And we treat the Bible like that. When I was at Park Hill Junior High, back then it was 7th, 8th, and 9th were there. They hadn't moved the freshmen uh, to Pierce yet. And instead of basketball, I ran track. And, and I wasn't bad, but there wasn't, you know, there weren't a lot of guys clamoring to go out and run distance on the track team. So not a lot of competition, but over a couple years I got better. And by the time I got to my freshman year, I was pretty good and competitive in our district. And I remember going to a meet, and there was a, one of my chief rivals was a, a kid, and I can't remember his name for the life of me, but he went to West Junior High. And uh, he'd beaten me in a couple races, and I saw him right before the race in the 800 do this. And I thought, well, that might work. <laughs> and so I did that too. And, and if... If you were here in September when I preached, I, I told you part of my story. It wasn't really until my junior year that I came to faith. I'd grown up churched. I knew a lot of Bible stories. I was in a Christian culture, but I had no relationship with Jesus. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I wasn't reflecting his life in any way, but to win a race, I mean, I'll go Catholic. I, I don't know. What, what do I need to do? Not only that, but when the race started, I had a mantra. It was my verse. How many of you think you might know, as I'm running around the track, what verse do you think I might have been quoting? What's that? An Isaiah verse? How about something from Philippians? I'm giving you a hint. Come on, what's our athlete verse? We love it. 413, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
I'm not a Christian, but I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength. And that, that's how I was trying to use the Bible as my little motivational mantra. And how many people have been guilty of using that verse when really what Paul's doing in, a, in Philippians there is he's talking about living the Christian life no matter if things are going poorly or things are going well. He said, I can be abased, I can abound, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It has nothing to do with hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. It has nothing to do with getting that promotion at work. It's about living the Christian life. But we treat the Bible like that. We, we pull out these little verses and these phrases that we, we want to just kind of keep going. And I'm not saying that we can't focus on a single verse. I don't want you to write me nasty emails about that. But if we take it out of the context of the big story, then we're missing something. So we treat it like that, but we kind of expect it to be like B, like a, have you ever heard it? It's like a manual to life. You know, this is my how-to guide. It's a, it's a guide to home repairs. And really the Bible is not like that. It is not, it doesn't have an index where you say, now some of the new Bibles, they try to do this, but there's, uh, how do I fix my marriage? Oh, that's on this page. How do I deal with my teenagers? Oh yeah, five steps. That's not what the Bible is. It's not a, a list of procedures and parts and materials to tell you how to solve every little problem. Which is why he says it's really like C. It's this, it's like the collected papers of the American Anti-Slavery Society. What he means by that, if we we'll go to the next slide, he says the Bible is a series of occasional pieces of various genres that traces the development of a transformational movement. So let's break that down for a minute. It's a series, so, so back here we said it's a collection of books. So it's not one author, multiple authors over centuries, but they were what are, we refer to as occasional pieces. The easiest way to understand that is take Paul's letters. These were occasional documents. He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth to answer some questions and to deal with some specific issues. In other words, it was written not to us, it was written to them. Does that make sense? It was written for us. All of scripture is for us, but it was, they were specifically written to an audience within a culture, to a people. They were occasional pieces. Various genres, there's everything from narrative to poetry to prophecy to long lists of architectural design. But ultimately, they come together as a cohesive story that traces the development of a transformational movement. That's what the Bible is. It's a great narrative, a big story. And we've come through the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes up the first three quarters of the Bible. And I love this. I borrowed this summary from a commentary that said, this story first tells how God created a world of beauty and harmony, and he made people creative, relational beings like himself to care for this world and develop its potential. Next, it tells how people disastrously turned away from God and describes the devastating consequences for the whole creation. Since then, God has been working to bring people back to himself and to restore the world. As the pages unfold, readers can see God continually at work to heal humanity and reclaim his world by fulfilling the promise he makes to Abraham early in Genesis, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if we miss the big story of the Old Testament, it's so easy to get lost, especially when you're reading through the prophets and it can be confusing, it's poetic language. And we have to 
take that and understand it in light of the big story, this story of redemption, of God restoring the world. The New Testament makes up the final one quarter of the Bible, and that's where we're going for the rest of the series. It continues the story. And it tells specifically how this story reached its crowning moment in the first century AD as Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's Messiah, answered the question of who God is and what he's like once and for all. Jesus revealed the deepest meanings of the laws. He demonstrated what human life and community were meant to be. And he introduced the forgiveness and life of the age to come into the present age. The New Testament also tells how the followers of Jesus formed a new community and invited people from all over the world to join him. In the conclusion to Powell's book, he says this, the Bible is bigger than our previous ideas, our regular prejudices, our self-loving distortions. The Bible really is a strange new world, and yet it invites us in. The Bible doesn't want to merely reflect us it wants to remake us. And so I wanted to spend extra time thinking about where we are in this story, where we're going. And with that in mind, we want to turn now to the gospel of Matthew. I have another couple of books to recommend to you to help us as we try to read and digest scripture. These, uh, this pair of books by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, the first is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, a fantastic book that talks about the different types of literature in the Bible. How do you approach narrative versus poetry versus an epistle, uh, etc. And then finally, this is a great guidebook as you're reading scripture. And there's other sources like this, but this is how to read the Bible book by book. So before you just dive in and feel like, well, I don't know, I guess I just need to read hard and I'll figure it out. We often need some context and understanding. And there are great sources like this to help us. Their description of the book of Matthew, Fee and Stewart say this, the genius of Matthew's gospel lies in its structure, which presents a marvelous tapestry of narrative interwoven with carefully crafted blocks of teaching. So well is this done that the most prominent feature of Matthew's story, the five blocks of teaching, is sometimes not even noticed because one is more aware of the flow of the narrative. Each block of teaching, Matthew sets it apart. He starts with Jesus' disciples coming to him, and then he ends with a similar conclusion. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and then he goes on with the narrative. Matthew is one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each gospel writer is telling the story of Jesus, but he has a different agenda. He's writing to a slightly different audience. And so that's important as you understand, as you read these books, you know, have you ever seen, there, there, are, there have been attempts to take at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just kind of mesh them up together. And it's like, well, let's, let's put them all together, make sure we get all the events, because we're very uh, aware of the events, and we want to get the facts right. So when we do that and we try to bring them together, what we're actually doing is we're taking away from what these gospel writers were trying to do. Matthew chose the events he wanted to include. Luke chose the events he wanted to include. Of course, by the Holy Spirit, but with an intent. So in the book of Matthew, we think of Matthew as the most Jewish of the four Gospels because he's continually tying the story of Jesus back to the story of Israel. 
Matthew starts with a lengthy genealogy that shows Jesus in the royal line of Israel. Matthew wants the Jews to know Christ is king. He is that king in that line. It's also helpful to remember that these gospel writers, they weren't um, taking notes necessarily as they went, and then as soon as Jesus was resurrected, they published their book. Okay, It's not like the guy that gets fired and his memoirs uh, on the stands like two months later. right? These, these came out decades later. Decades later when they actually recorded these events. And, and that might seem a little surprising to some of us. They're like, wouldn't it have been more accurate if they would have just written it down right then? And when we think things like that, what we're doing is bringing our own culture to Scripture. Because you're talking about a culture that that's how they passed on history and genealogies and, and instructions for living. It was primarily all the cultures in ancient world were oral cultures. There were writings, but they were used to remembering details. We talked about this when we were having problems with the screens a, a couple months ago. I used the example because we, we were struggling and the lyrics weren't showing up. And, and I, it was funny how, you know, a song you've known, if you're watching it on the screen... And then it goes away. You're like, I don't know the words anymore. You know, it's like because we've, we're leaning on the screen as a crutch. And I use the example of phone numbers and said, yeah, how many phone numbers do you know right now? You know, I, I do not know all my kids' phone numbers. I don't. I know my wife's phone number. But my kids, I have to look it up because I saved their phone number. And when I need them, I just press their name. I don't dial in their phone number, right? So my brain has sort of lost the capacity to remember phone numbers. In the same way, we think, man, how, I couldn't remember all of this and pass it along from one person to the next, but that was their culture. They passed on these stories, and so that decades later, when they wrote them down, they were doing so with a purpose. Matthew is writing to the Jews decades later who are now followers of Jesus, and he's encouraging them, your roots are still important. We're still tying back. This is a continuation of the story. One of the ways Matthew does that, 11 times he says, this was to fulfill what was said through the prophets. Matthew keeps tying back to the prophets and saying, this is now, what we're experiencing now is what the prophets who you've been studying your whole life, whom your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents knew, the writings of the prophets, those prophecies, those are being fulfilled now. It's connected. That's what Matthew, one of the things he was trying to do. And then his five-part structure, it speaks to Jesus as the new Moses. Because do you think Jesus only spoke five times? No. But Matthew chooses five speeches. And maybe he's even compiling some of these to say these are five things that Jesus said. And he's reflecting back on Moses in the five books of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus now is the new Moses. Remember, Moses went to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up on a mountain and sits down to talk about the new law, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Originally, when we, Aaron and I first talked about this week, I, I wanted to spend a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And once I realized how hard that was going to be, I decided to change it up a little bit. But truthfully, if you Google Sermon on the Mount, and man, you'll find pastors that do three-part, nine-part, 12-part, 26-part, 52-part. You can break that 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7 into so many parts. It's so rich. It's so thick. There's so much. And then there's lots of disagreement about what was the real thrust of it. Was it really about inward or was Jesus actually raising the stakes and saying, no, the outward's going to even be harder? You know, and so instead of, I'm not a Greek scholar nor a New Testament scholar. My seminary degree is in leadership. And so I thought, you know, what I want to do is bring this to you in a way that I'm coming alongside you as a fellow traveler, as someone who wants to follow Jesus and meet him in his word. And so what I want to do that I think will be helpful for us is I want to take some time to talk about just a little portion of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm more interested in how the Sermon on the Mount fits within the narrative, within the big story. Because that's where I'm hoping that we can find some simplicity on the other side of complexity. I don't have these verses on the screen for you, so if you want to follow along, you can open your Bible, you can pull out a Bible app, you can go to BibleGateway.org and pull up Matthew 4 in the ESV is where I am. Now, before we get to Matthew 4, Jesus got baptized. We heard Alan talk about that. Jesus was baptized at the beginning of Matthew 4. He, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he faces the temptations, overcomes them. And I want to pick it up in Matthew 4, verse 12, when Jesus begins his ministry. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a key verse. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's what John preached. It's what the disciples would later preach. Jesus repeats this phrase. What does it mean? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's easy for us. I often think of the word repentance and kind of make it synonymous with saying I'm sorry. And the Bible does say that godly uh, sorrow produces repentance, but repentance is not just saying you're sorry or being sorry. The word actually means to change your mind or to change the way you think, to change the way you see. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. It's touchable. It's here. It's within your grasp. And who is he saying this to? He's saying this to a Jewish audience. They were looking for a kingdom like that of David. They thought, we're looking for a majestic king to come and overthrow the Romans. That's who we're looking for. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Repent. You have to change the way you think about this. The kingdom of heaven, it's here. It's now because I am here. And Jesus was turning their worlds upside down. Next, he begins to choose disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if you've grown up in church, this is not shocking to you at all, is it? He called some fishermen. We know they were fishermen. I mean, there's some great stories that happen later because they're fishermen. They're in boats. They, they catch a lot of fish. They, you know, Jesus walks on the water. You know, we, this all makes sense to us. But these guys, these were not first-round draft picks. These were not like the, the, the cool kids. These were kids that were getting picked last at, at you know, kickball in Galilee, whatever they were playing back then. Later on, Luke in the book of Acts actually says about these guys, he says they were uneducated and untrained. But they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus for three and a half years. But they were uneducated and untrained. These were not a bunch of smart guys. They were just working guys. And they're the ones that Jesus, just think about this. Jesus is about to go in, we're about to read into the synagogues and teach. And he's going to confront the educated, the elite of the day, and the guys he chooses to sort of be his posse are fishermen. I mean, I don't know the last time you've been fishing, but if you fish and you've cleaned fish, how long does it take to get that smell off your hands? I mean, these are not guys you want to bring to church. They still stink. These are the guys that he chose because why? Repent. Change the way you think. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not what you think it is. It's not going to come the way you think it's going to come. Change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm picking these guys, these fishermen, who are willing to leave everything and follow me. And you think, well, why wouldn't they? I mean, it's fishing. No, 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 no. This was at great risk to them. In an honor-shame culture, they decided to leave their father to follow this man. This was radical what they were doing. And I'm bringing these things out for you to to think about the narrative. These are important things to to soak in in this narrative so that we're not just trying to find the propositional truths and the three steps or the five steps or the ten steps to a better life. Be invited into the story and then think, okay, what does that mean? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change the way I think so that I can experience God's kingdom? Jesus goes on, and he went through all Galilee, in verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So not only was he teaching in the synagogues, but he was demonstrating power by healing the sick, by setting free those who were oppressed by demons. And then chapter 5 says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then begins the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's our temptation as we encounter Scripture, is we say, what am I going to read? I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount. Where do I start? I'm going to start in chapter 5, because that's where it starts. And I just, 
I could spend a lot of time unpacking this. It's part of what Glenn Powell tries to do in his book. But uh, these chapters and verses, these were added much later. Hundreds of years later, these things were added to help us kind of find our place, to help us be able to study and talk about it. But the one negative about these chapters and verses is sometimes they chop up the story in a way that's unnatural and they don't encourage us to look ahead or look back to see what was just happening or even to look forward and see what happens next. And so what we end up doing is reading small little bits of scripture and think, okay, that's good. I think I found something for today. Instead of immersing ourselves in the story of scripture so we can see what's actually being said in the bigger context I actually want to just skip for a minute to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, it ends with, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then look what, what happens next. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So there was a great crowd before There's a great crowd after, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, and he ultimately heals the leper, and then there's several other stories of healing. So in the midst, we like to focus on this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's surrounded by Jesus healing people, by the crowds following wherever he went, a desire to follow after Jesus. So let's not miss that context that this Sermon on the Mount comes in the midst of. And so what I want to do, and partly as a way of of giving you another tool as you are reading scripture, but what I want to do is instead of reading a large portion of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to start with a verse that we all have heard. Many people who have not even in church have heard this verse. This is a very common, uh, other than the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer, this might be the next most uh, well-known piece of scripture the Beatitudes, and we're going to look at one of them. And then we're going to look at it in several translations, because that's one of the ways I want to encourage you today as a way that you can have a better understanding of what Scripture is saying is by reading it in different translations. And I'll talk about why in just a minute. But let's look at the first verse. It says in verse 2, actually, of chapter 5, says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I would venture to guess that most of us have heard that verse so many times that it's hard to even wrap our minds around what it is. Because we're expecting what's next. Oh, yeah, yeah, and and blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And maybe you've memorized those, and you could just regurgitate the Beatitudes. But let's pause for a minute, and let's look deeper at this verse by simply looking at it in some different translations. I have up there the King James, which... Instead of saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, in King James, you have to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's like, ooh, that sounds meaty. I mean, I don't know what it even means, but blessed are the poor in spirit. But the the NET, you know, we'll, we'll get back to blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Okay, now I, I maybe nuancing it a little bit. The New Living says this way, God blesses those who are poor. And realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Eugene Peterson in the message says, How happy are the humble-minded, 
So instead of blessed, he's using the word happy. Instead of poor in spirit, he's talking, he says humble-minded, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I'm sorry, that was J.B. Phillips. The, the next is the message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. ERV says, great blessings belong to those who know they are spiritually in need. God's kingdom belongs to them. And then finally, what I heard when I was growing up was the Bible, the version for the hard of hearing, the Amplified Bible. Thank you. Just a little laughter is all I need. But what the Amplified Bible does, it sort of like inserts the thesaurus at key points. And it, it actually can be helpful when you're looking at a single verse. It's kind of difficult to read long passages in the Amplified Bible. But here's what it says. Blessed, parentheses, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired, are the poor in spirit, parentheses, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. As Brian mentioned, we're going to have a baptism in the second service, and there's going to be translation from Spanish to English. How many of you are bilingual? Some bilingual folks. And so you know that when you're translating, you're not really saying it word for word what they said because you're, you're trying to get at not the exact sequence of the words and what they're saying. You're trying to get at what they mean. My dad used to say, don't, don't listen and do what I say. Do what I mean. You know, we're supposed to read his mind. But if you've ever traveled and been in a culture where you had to have translation, I'll tell you, it, it was very disorienting for me. Like in Mexico or Guatemala, I don't speak Spanish, but I, I know enough Spanish words where it wasn't terribly disorienting. But when I was in India, and they were translating from English into Hindi, and I was like, I have no idea. And have you ever been in a setting like that where you said something and it took you 10 seconds to say it, and then it took them two minutes to translate it? You're like, there's no way I said all that. But what are they doing in translating? They are trying to get at what you mean. Or they may even be trying to explain some of the idioms that you're using, things that, that, you know, you're using an example that maybe the people listening, they have no idea what you're talking about. So that's one of the challenges of translation. And one of the reasons that we read multiple translations is different translators have a different agenda. Some are very focused on getting the original language right. And when they do that, it can make the reading a little bit clunky. The, the syntax is, can be switched around, and it can be a little hard, but, but we still are glad to have those translations. And then other translations really try to get the contemporary languages right. And they're easier to read, but the, some purists would be like, yeah, but that's, I don't know, that's not the right order. And so the, the easiest thing to do is just read, read both, read a variety. And as you do, you can see that in a simple thing like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, et cetera, et cetera, what we want to assign as, as English speakers is we want to have a strong subject and a strong verb. So like blessed. Oh, that means God blesses those. Okay, so some have tried to get at that, uh, the new living. God blesses those who are poor. But the word there really isn't getting at that. It's more about if you're this, if you have this desperate need for God, then you will be, as one writer said, in your happy place. It's about a state of being, not about God will bless you if you are this way. And so just as an example, we've looked at one verse 
in multiple versions, and it's easy to do. Go to BibleGateway.org, put in the, the verse that you want, and then there's a drop-down menu, and there's lots of different translations. And that's one of the ways you can soak yourself in the story. And I want to talk, give you just a couple other ways that we can come to this word and be invited into the big story. Because really, my simple idea for us today is that you would find yourself within the big story. And even I'm using that as a double meaning, to find yourself. Meaning, one, I do want you to locate yourself. Where am I? Where are we within the big story? But also, I'm using find in the sense of discover. Discover who you are in light of God's word, in light of God's story, in light of his invitation for you to be a part of it. And so I want to encourage you as we go about our weeks and as we continue to interact with Scripture, that you would do these things, that you would first immerse yourself in the story of Scripture with some big readings. And I know we're giving you some, some smaller chunks, and, and I'm not saying we can't do that as well. But one of the things, if you haven't done it, for the Sermon on the Mount, it'll take you 15 minutes to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Go read the whole thing. If it's been a while since you've done this, when we get into the, uh, the epistles, if we're talking about Ephesians, go read all six chapters of Ephesians in one sitting. Sit down and read the whole thing. Read It was a letter. I mean, how many of you have received a letter from someone you deeply loved and you thought, I'm going to read this in five parts? Like, I'll just read it over the, I'll just do one part a day. I don't have time to read a whole letter. Who has time for that? I mean, it's like 30 minutes. Like, if you got a long letter, you would read the whole thing, wouldn't you? If it came from someone that, that loved you and was try, trying to tell you some important things, you'd sit down and you'd read it. You might even read it again and again, and the next day you might read it again. And that's the idea of immersing yourself in these big readings so that we don't miss out on these larger things that God is trying to communicate to us through his word. The second thing I've mentioned is read from different translations so you see the nuances of the text and then don't be afraid to engage other resources to help you overcome the cultural barriers. As I said earlier, the Bible was not written to you and to me. It was written for us, but it was written to another culture. And oftentimes those cultural barriers can be difficult to overcome. And two simple resources for you. I know I've given you a lot of books. Uh, I'll put these two up. Uh, on the right is a fantastic book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. Aaron's talked about one of, the, one of their chapters, they talk about culture and this whole honor-shame culture. And so you've heard Aaron refer to that in di at different times. That, this book really digs deep into those type of issues. So if that's something that interests you, I recommend that to you. But for all of us, I'll tell you a very accessible way before you read these guys at the Bible Project have done some incredible work, incredible work of summarizing every book of the Bible in sort of a graphic way that they do voiceover with, and then they do themes of the Bible. And I just want to encourage you to use those resources so that we're not just snacking on the Bible, but we're feasting on God's word.